it's possible to have a dysfunctional, unhealthy relationship to anything, right? So I'd say that I would invite people to, to, to look at their own relationship to whatever it is they're doing, whether it's running or anything, and say, how, how is this serving me and, uh, or not serving me? Uh, am I doing this to the exclusion of my responsibilities to my family, friends, loved ones, community? <clears throat> or, or in fact, is this, is this practice of running actually um, foundational in, 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 in helping me do that? My sense that overall for the majority of runners and athletes is that it's the, the second scenario which is true, that, that running actually tends to be to cultivate connection and gratitude and and and, and love and 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 the ability to be to be um, able to be of service to others it, 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 if it if it stops being that then then maybe maybe it maybe you want to look at that but i i, I think it, it it's usually the case that it's a it's a it's a positive force in people's lives What's up, everyone? That was J.M. Thompson. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. This week's episode is with J.M. Thompson. He's an ultra runner, a clinical psychologist, and author of the new book, Running is a Kind of Dreaming, a powerful, mind-bending memoir about how running saved him from a life of depression, drug addiction, and suicide attempts. This conversation was fascinating and one of my favorites that I've had for the podcast to date. In it, we discussed Jason's book, how it's structured and how it came to be, but also what it's been like for him, a mental health professional, to open up about his own issues so publicly. We talked about ultra running, his evolving relationship to it, and the types of personalities the sport tends to attract. Jason told me about what he called the waking dream state that he experiences in long races, the process of reorganizing our past experiences with trauma so that we can move forward, the importance of learning to ask for help, and a lot more. Before we get into this one, a big thank you to Tracksmith for their continued support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand born from a desire to celebrate both the history and evolving culture of running. They recently released their fall collection where classic style and modern running performance meet. The collection was designed to celebrate the seasonal shifts as we find our rhythm this fall. I have been living in the Harrier long sleeve the past month or so. It's a merino blend that keeps me warm and doesn't smell, no matter how much I sweat in it. And don't tell my wife, but I've worn it multiple days in a row before throwing it in the wash. Check it out for yourself, along with some of my other favorite apparel picks at tracksmith.com Mario. Also, here's something really cool. Use the code MARIO, that's M-A-R-I-O, all caps, at checkout to receive free shipping on your order. And also, by using that code, 5% of your purchases will go to support LA Saves Track, 
a campaign to rebuild the dilapidated track facilities at L.A. High School, providing access and pathways to opportunity for the student-athletes at Los Angeles' oldest high school. This is an organization that I've been aware of for some time now, and it means a lot to me that we can help reinvigorate the athletic programs at one of L.A.'s most underserved schools. So that's tracksmith.com slash Mario, or use the code M-A-R-I-O, all caps, at checkout to get free shipping on your order while also helping support L.A. Saves Track. This episode is also brought to you by Recover Athletics. This is a new partnership, and I am super stoked about it. Consistency is everything in running, right? Right. If you want to race to your potential, you have to train to your potential. And in order to train to your potential, you have to stay healthy and not let injuries compromise your consistency. This is where the Recover Athletics app comes in. It's the first ever prehab app for runners that is guaranteed to make you stronger and more resistant to those annoying injuries that threaten to derail your training. Recover Athletics has worked with the world's best sports physicians and Olympians like Meb Kofleski to design an app that makes prehab fun and easy. In 90 seconds, the app will customize a program for your body and your training with different resistance exercises, plyometrics, and mobility work. No pills, no potions, no BS, just 100% evidence-based exercises that are easy to follow on your iPhone or iPad. You can go check out my Strava feed to see some of the prehab sessions from Recover Athletics that I've been doing lately to keep myself healthy and strong. Your first custom prehab program is free, and they have an unlimited free trial on the app. It's available only in the iOS app store right now by searching Recover Athletics or by clicking the link in this episode's show notes. If you like it and you want to upgrade, their premium subscription costs less than one trip to a PT. Check out the Recover Athletics app today and keep the consistency train rolling this fall. Okay, please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with ultra runner, psychologist, and author J.M. Thompson. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. As I just mentioned a little while ago, how I first became aware of you, even though we live in the same general area, we know a lot of the same people, we've run a lot of the same trails, was an interview that you did recently with the San Francisco Chronicle. And you were talking about your new book, Running is a Kind of Dreaming. And I was like, well, how did I, one, not know this book had, had come out? And two, that it is written by a local author. So that was my my introduction to you. And in it, you talked about your experience running the Tahoe 200. And I've since gotten a digital copy of the book and been able to read it myself. And it's a memoir. And you weave your life story around the experience of running around Lake Tahoe in the fall of 2000. 18. And I'm just curious off the top, how did you think about the structure of writing the book? Uh, I'd been running and writing and thinking about both of those two activities for a really long time. Back in, I think, 2008, 2009, I'd had an attempt at more of a conventional memoir about some very difficult experiences, which maybe we'll get to, that had happened in the years prior. And the book had been somewhat successful. I didn't manage to kind of really pull it together into a form I was really happy with. Um, 
and to be honest, kind of abandoned writing that for a while. I trained in the subsequent years, trained as a clinical psychologist, went through that whole path. Uh, I, I, meanwhile, I'd been really developing my myself as a as a runner. First, short trail runs, eventually becoming a, a ultra runner, and over the months and years. I'd written these random blog posts here and there talking about my experience on lo especially longer ultras and begun to, to weave through material in that, really trying to think through psychologically what, what this was like and what it did for me. And then in around 2016, I had this aha moment where it, it occurred to me that these two writing projects that had seemed completely separate the, the memoir about my my some of my formative experiences and everything i'd experienced as an ultra runner actually the, the, there was something that joined the dots between those two things uh, one thing led to another and ultimately the form of the book is to talk about one run this huge run 96 hours pretty much continuously running 205 miles around lake tahoe uh, intercut with these flashbacks to my life beforehand. And the reason that it, it struck me to do that is because in some ways that had been the the experience for me of ultras, especially the really long ones, is that uh, I, I imagine most runners, especially ultra runners can relate to this, that when you're in this state of just being in the moment and putting one foot in front of the other for hours and hours and hours and hours, sometimes days, the kind of regular thinking mind tends to fall silent. You're not thinking so much about what's for, what's for lunch or what you did yesterday. You know, you're really thinking about just moving. But, but at the same time, my experience was you went to this kind of dream state where, where really everything comes up, who you are, the meaning of life, what, what's, 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 what's it all about. And I, I hadn't seen a running book that had tried. I've seen running books that have mentioned that, but I'd never seen a running book that had tried to actually, in a in a step by step way, evoke what that was like from the inside. And uh, so, hence, hence the hence the structure of the book. You mentioned how you are a psychologist, and most psychologists or mental health professionals in general, they don't open up about their own issues. And we'll get into the specifics of those later in this conversation. I mean, it's a, it's a taboo thing in your profession. Was that a challenging hurdle for you to clear when you were thinking about this book? It was a huge hurdle. Even though there's, there's nothing in the legal or ethical codes of psychologists or, or indeed other mental health professionals that strictly prohibits us from talking about ourselves, there is a, a very long history of a, of a kind of de facto taboo and prohibition about doing so. And uh, right from the very beginning of clinical training, that was uh, drilled into me, that uh, self-disclosure, as, as people refer to it, was, was generally not done. And if it's done, it's done in a very, very uh, kind of measured and careful way. Of course, there can be good reasons for that. No one wants the, the kind of therapist who, you know, so to speak, you go to them and you say and you begin to talk about 
whatever you're going through. And the therapist says, you know, you think you've got problems. Well, let me, you know, let me tell you, right? No one wants that. At the same time, my sense is that the, the, the field of psychology, the mental health professions overall, still feels as if it's if they're cloaked overall in really massive amounts of stigma and in particular this i think quite unhealthy sense of a divide between quote unquote the the healthy uh healers and the 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 troubled or or, or even uh, sick patients on the other side a kind of us or them divide that we of course we know to be a, a, a total illusion right so whether it's anxiety or depression or trauma or substance use issues uh, th- these these are in some ways they're equal op- opportunity problems as, as the saying goes in in 12 step you know alcoholism goes from park the park bench to park avenue it's it's really really everyone <clears throat> and so my sense was that by by being willing to overcome that taboo and speak really in a sort of with unflinching candor about the path that led me from being really uh traumatized to being uh well running was central in that that there would be real value for others uh, readers in general but perhaps clinicians in particular in seeing a, 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 a kind of model of how it's possible to speak to these experiences, and despite the, the the challenges that brings up emotionally to to be so raw and honest about very personal experience, that 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 is not only survivable, but that there can be real psychological benefits by by being willing to 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 know oneself and be be open about that in a in a co- in a kind of comprehensive way. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, in my own work as a running coach, I find that by sharing my own experiences, granted, I'm an N of one myself, but things that I've gone through in my past, whether it's injuries, I have a history with disordered eating, I'm able to spot these things in athletes that I work with. And again, it's, as you said, not to put them in a position of, well, you think you have problems, Mm -hmm. you should hear what I went through. But I do think there is an empathy there. And it helps to strengthen the connection between those two people. In my case, the athlete and myself as the coach, in your case, as the mental health professional and a patient that helps to make progress toward a better place. I think that's spot on, Mario. My sense is that you know, to the extent as in whatever role that you're in as a, as a coach or a clinician, to the extent we, we can kind of elude in a, in a uh, skillful way to the reality that, yeah, the, these, these challenges are, uh, are, are to some extent universal, right? My, my struggle is not your struggle, but, but uh, you know, you, this is what you, you sign up for by, by virtue of joining the, 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 you know, the larger race, the human race, you, you sort of sign up for some degree of adversity and, and heartbreak. And, uh, and you're not alone in, in this, you, you, that, that, that's a powerful message for, for people to hear, not just as an abstraction, but from really from the heart. As of this conversation, your book has been out for, I think exactly a month. Have you gotten or received any backlash from colleagues, others in your profession or just in general about sharing your story in such a candid way? 
I've, I've received some responses from senior colleagues in, in the VA where, where I work, and uh, I, I didn't know how this was going to go, but to, actually I found that the, the opposite has been the case, that the, the responses I've gotten from actually pretty senior people are very enthusiastic and um, very much expressing the view that something like this kind of candor has been a long time coming and and really appreciating and valuing my willingness to do this. So I, you know, I didn't know how this was going to go. I had, as you can imagine, a fair amount of apprehension that this could be difficult or even career limiting in some ways. And of course, as you say, I'm only a month in here, time will tell, but, but thus far the, the response has been, uh, really incredibly, incredibly encouraging. When you put the book out, were you worried at all that describing your own past with drugs, depression, suicidal thoughts in such a, I mean, an incredibly detailed way would be triggering it all for some people who read the book? I was aware that the descriptions of those experiences necessarily bring up an enormous amount of emotion Mm -hmm. and that it would be my responsibility and the responsibility of the publisher too, uh, Harper Collins, Harper One, uh, to to be clear in how the book was marketed and and described so that people know when they're picking this up what they're getting into. So, you know, the book is not explicitly presented on the back with with a quote unquote trigger warning, but it's really clear that this book does delve into some of the, you know, the darkest and most painful experiences that people can have. It's not just suicidal thinking, but a but a serious suicide attempt, drug addiction, child trauma. So I'd say if uh, for readers who are uh, interested in those topics, but concerned that uh, the vivid descriptions of those experiences will be beyond what they can tolerate, then I would always encourage from a trauma-informed perspective people to, to take care of themselves and, and, and think carefully about whether uh, that's something you, you want to pay attention to right now. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe right now you, you should go for a run or you know, watch, watch a comedy show. Maybe that would be better for you. At the same time, I also, uh, it's also clear in the back of the book, and I'll, I, I want to be clear to, to, to listeners now, is that what occurred to me, not only about the, my own experience, my own story, and the, the potential of this book, is that it's not just a descent into uh, the abyss, so to speak. It's not just the, the, the journey into the, the underworld of um, depression and addiction. It's, it's a description of that then a description of what is the the pathway from that um, nightmare into recovery, well-being, and and and, and frankly, towards the end, uh, joy and and you know the 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 growth that can occur in the aftermath of of, of trauma, so-called post-traumatic wisdom. Uh, people talk about. And my sense is that for for anyone who is either coping with depression or anxiety or trauma or substance abuse in, in their own life or lives of people close to them, uh, the experience of reading a story of 
the of, of someone who went into those experiences but came out and survived um, and learned from those experiences. <clears throat> my 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 intention was that this would provide and instill hope. So yeah, absolutely, th this could be challenging for folks to read, but but I sense ultimately it, it, the, the the potential here is to be affirming and, and, and somewhat cathartic too. Who did you have in mind when you were writing the book as the target reader? I, the book was a, a really long time in the making, many, many years. And there were many hours of sitting by myself in, in my home office very late at the night and getting into this trance state or flow state at, at times eventually where I was really in the writing process and without getting too sort of supernatural or, or, or kind of woo-woo about it. But there was a definitely a feeling at a certain point of a kind of presence with me, uh, the, of, of someone, someone I was writing to. And it's sort of hard to say who that was specifically, but it, it reminded me of times when in the very early days of uh, recovery from severe depression, I would be reading books about depression. And I remember in particular reading a, a book by someone uh, about suicidality. And there was just a moment in the text where it was almost uh, like that moment in a play where the actor breaks the fourth wall and talks directly to the audience and says, I see you and I, I don't know you, uh, but I, I, I want you to know that I believe in you and I believe in the universal human potential to get through difficult things. And that somehow that, that feeling of connection, even though it's through uh, the medium of a page and, uh, of course, I, I didn't know the, the, the author, there was some sort of sense of, oh, I am a, some sort of bridge has been connected between me and an, another human being. And I suppose in writing this book, I also had a sense of the, the reality of, you know, we, this is where we're at right now as a country, right? There's so many of our, uh, our brothers and sisters um, literally metaphorically are struggling right now. I had a sense of this being someone out there who is, is searching for a sense of connection and answers and, you know, it's sort of like the, you know, you're um, struggling, um, lost at sea, and there's absolutely no hope. And then you just grab hold of something and, and, and feel like you have some buoyancy in the middle of, of total chaos. That, that sense of providing some kind of sense of stability and refuge to someone. I had a real sense of the presence of that person when I was writing what was it like for you to sit down in your home office late at night and write this book and revisit and even relive some of those memories, go through journals, talk mm -hmm. to friends and family about their experiences with you? Was it cathartic at all or was it really challenging or some combination of those two things? Definitely a combination. I was really careful with myself that I didn't go back and really begin to embark on writing this book until I had been, I was well established in my own well-being and recovery. I was, by the time I started writing this in 2016, I was 10 years sober. 
I'd been in total remission from major depression for about the same period of time. I'd been in a lot of therapy. Uh, I was, I was and am happily married, kids, a job. I felt I was, I was solid as much as a person can be solid in a, in a, a, a chaotic world. I also felt that from the, uh, with the, the support of the people I was working with, in particular editors at Harper One, who I'd described the, the aims of the book, I had a sense of their support with me while I was writing, almost as it were a kind of image of them behind my shoulder saying, you know, this, you're okay, you can talk about this, and um, we're, we're here for you. And for the most part, when I was then writing and reflecting on the these memories, experiences that I had lived through, you know, whether in my childhood or teens or, or, or early 30s, that were extremely distressing when they happened, the, the best way that I can describe that is I was reliving them. It, it felt as if I was putting on like a, a virtual reality headset and I was I was creating some kind of internal simulation uh, sufficient to be able to then write it down so that the reader would get some real feeling from the inside of, oh, that's what this is like. Oh, right. Okay. I get that. For the most part, though, then going with that, that metaphor of the VR headset, I was aware this is a simulation. You know what? If this is too much, any point you can click exit and you can get out of this. Um, there were a few moments where, when I stopped writing, it was like, the simulation hasn't stopped and I don't like it. And it would, it would continue for a little while, especially the, the suicidality pieces that, that had a, a kind of resonance sometimes beyond, and then I, beyond the writing. And, and then I would just be very, very clear with myself about using strategies I'd already developed over the years, talking with my own therapist, friends, family members, editors, to bring me into the present moment. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it definitely was, it was, it was, it was challenging. To shift gears a little bit, what was the process of pitching this book to publishers like for you? Because you are a new author. You're not really well known outside of your local circles. You're not a champion ultra runner who has that kind of visibility. I'd love to just understand what some of those initial conversations were like. Yeah, so I'm yeah I'm definitely a very very average ultra runner, and I say that not with false modesty. I mean, I've literally looked through the lists on the you know the, the results list of various races prior to entering a race, and I'll pick the middle time. The, literally, the middle time is like yeah, I'll probably do about that, and then I do. So <laughs> I, I I I make no claims to you know athletic greatness like many of the the guests on your on your show, Mario. I. I had a sense, though, that that uh, despite my my kind of mediocre ultra running pedigree, uh, the the what I offered by virtue of this combination of ultra running experience uh, married to what I had lived through uh, my my personal story, but then overlaid with what I'd learned as a uh, clinical psychologist. Um, neuroscientist, 
weaving all of that together, that there will be something unique about that that might might not necessarily be feasible for either a notable uh, athlete or or frankly a, a notable uh, clinician that that you know for the most part people in the mental health world not to completely stereotype them but it's it's not necessarily the most athletic bunch right and and conversely not to stereotype ultra runners or the ultra running world but that's a, a world very much about the the, the 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 athletic, right? And so my sense is that by offering something really about the connection between the mind and the body, but based in this very unusual sort of hybrid connection, there would be something novel there. So you asked about the actual process of pitching. So I had a sense of that hybrid connection being potentially interesting. In about 2016, I approached uh, an agent, Bonnie Nadell. She is a well-known agent. She had represented the novelist uh, David Foster Wallace, who, mm-hmm. who wrote in a very lucid way about his own experience of depression, of, of course, sadly uh, died by suicide in, I think, 20, 2008. I had a sense that she she might be receptive to some of the, the emotional and, and kind of conceptual aims of this book, she was at that point. I'd written a one-paragraph uh, synopsis of "I'm an ultra runner, I'm a psychologist. The book will be about that." And and she responded, "That sounds interesting." We spoke on the phone for about an hour, an hour or so, and then that began about two years of working on a proposal, which initially was partly about my story. Uh, but but at that point was was also and perhaps even predominantly about the the stories of other athletes. So I hadn't interviewed other people at that point, but I was aware just from reading profiles in Runners World and Trail Runner, etc., that I'm certainly not alone as an ultra runner in having uh, embraced ultras in, in endurance sports in general, for that matter, as a way of trying to come to terms with with difficult experience so i'd i'd passed a i I put together a a a proposal that that uh, referenced some of those experiences from other people and then proposed that either i might approach those other people or, or or new subjects to interview in the book when uh, Bonnie Nadell then sent out the proposal to the publishers. The, the publisher that responded was Harper One. And in my initial meeting with them, they had said, we like all of this. Uh, but the thing we, you know, we really are interested in is, is you, Jason. And it's, it's here in the proposal, but in this partial way. And, and we wonder if you if you wouldn't mind just telling us in a bit more detail about what you know what actually happened to you. And I said, well, I I, I could if you like. Uh, you, what do you mean now? And they said, sure. So I, I I told them really over the next twenty minutes my whole life story, and then they said, well, that's the book. That that is the book that we we think would would be really resonant. The other stuff is also interesting. But you're never going to be able to write about other people and other the inner, you know, the inner minutiae of someone else's traumatic experience. You're never going to be able to do that with the same kind of authenticity that you could talk about yourself. And 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 the 
They had me write another couple of sample chapters based on just my own experience. And, and then uh, I got the, the book deal as a result of that. And this was all before you had even committed to running the Tahoe 200 in 2018. That's right. So I once I got the, uh, the, the I sold the book to HarperOne in the early fall of 2018. And it's actually hard to recall whether I had already run the Tahoe 200 or whether the Tahoe 200 was just subsequent to that. But in any case, initially, it had not been on my mind that the Tahoe 200 was going to be really fundamental in the book. Right. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. But, 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 but then when I tried to think about what is the structure of this book going to be, um, you know, I've, I've probably read, I, I couldn't say I've read every running book, but I've read a lot of running books. And it always seemed to me that the ones that worked the best, um, the one which was a touchstone for me actually is called um, Jewel in the Sun. Uh, have you read that? I have it on my bookshelf yeah. right here behind me. Right. Uh, Dick right. and Alberto yeah. Salazar's right epic battle right so what is so amazing about that book i think is because you you have the stories of those two runners uh past and present but you really mm -hmm. have a sense of you were in that race with them and just that one race and it has this sort of titanic epic feeling that we all relate to as runners of you were just in it and it's whatever it is two hours and 20 minutes for them or some crazy fast time but it's a whole universe that is right. happening in the middle of that run. And that was something of a touchstone of wanting to create something a bit like that, of the, the stakes involved when you were, you were it's totally on and you were fully committed in the moment with, with every cell in your body to this one experience. And like, oh, yeah, I just did this 200-mile run, and that's what that was like. That was just – it was it – was, you know, 96 hours, but it was a lifetime. And I, everything is, is really in that. So I, I thought I'll write about that. That's really interesting. I mean, we've heard ultra running, usually hundred milers called life in a day. Mm -hmm. And you experience the, you know, the full gamut of it over the course of a hundred miles, which is long enough in itself. I mean, 200 miles is, I mean, it's its own universe mm -hmm. um, compared to a hundred. I mean, I, I float around in ultra running circles myself. I've raced up to 50 miles. Um, I've never run a hundred mile myself, but I know enough people that, you know, who talk about it and do this stuff that it's, it's become normalized. It's not a big deal for people that I know to run a hundred miles. 200 just seems like a whole different <laughs> level of, of something else. Um, and in, in your experience, I think you'd run, what, 400 milers before mm -hmm. you set out on the Tahoe mm -hmm. 200. What was the, the, the impetus for like doubling up mm -hmm. and going after this, this distance mm -hmm. that is twice as far as you'd already gone, which is already a long way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I'd done 400 mile runs, I maybe had entered six, finished four, and absolutely a 100 mile race, it's not as if when you're done, anyone thinks, oh, that wasn't long enough, right? <laughs> you, know, it's, it, it, that, you know, it's 26 hours or 30 hours or whatever, it's incredibly long. 
I, I, so I'd done a few of them. There was something honestly about the place itself. I've always found Tahoe to be this absolutely magical environment. The, the, the lake, the, the ring of mountains around the lake, it's just, it's stunning. It sort of has this feeling of unsurpassable magical beauty for me and always has. I've been there many times, skiing, running and so forth. There was that, there was also something about this idea of literally running a, a full circle that it, it seemed to be resonant for me with, with many of the practices that I'm aware of from various spiritual traditions of, of, of almost like a pilgrimage, right? That this was going to be, you know, of course, running can often have a, this sort of spiritual meditative, meditative com component. But I, ha I just had this intuition that something, when, when I, if I decided to embark on something that would necessarily involve many, many days and nights of moving in, you, you are out there in the wilderness going up to 10,000 feet, not sleeping for several nights and, and literally coming full circle that it, it would induce some sort of mental state that would be something different. I, I didn't know what it was. I knew it was going to be a leap into the total unknown. And that was, and I didn't really know even why I wanted to do it. It was, there was a certain feeling of this is feels somewhat irrational and insane, but in, you know, crazy in a good way. And I, I was just curious what, what happens after not just, one or two nights, but three, what happens after four nights of not sleeping, still on your feet, still moving? That must be totally bonkers. And, and sure enough, it, it was. Earlier in this conversation, you talked about this waking dream state. And hearing you describe what you just did, I'm curious, what was the difference in that waking dream state when running a 200 miler versus a 100 miler, which you had done multiple times before? I... I I'd had the sense from 100 milers for me, which took, you know, typically taken me the fastest, quote unquote fastest I ever did was 25 hours. And they, you know, they range from there to the, the low 30 hours. I'd had this sense that there's a state that you get into in the middle of the night where you've been, you've been running for 18, 20 hours. The, the brain is really crying out for sleep and you're just not allowing yourself to. And some basic capacities that ordinarily we take for granted, like the ability to say, do basic math or uh, you know, answer simple questions, that, that that goes offline a bit. So I already knew that I'd get something of that. But to go further than that, you know, several nights without sleep, I'd say that the difference is that you know, what it really brings home is, is, is I think, something that um, perhaps at least I sometimes take for granted, just like how amazing a, a, a uh, phenomenon sleep is, right? And that what happens when you, when you don't have that is, is things, things do fall apart mentally a little bit. It, you, you, you enter a, um, entered a state of mind where, I think the, probably the best way of, of, of putting this is where the the experience really felt completely sealed off from anything that had happened before it. 
I, I had these long stretches, and by long I mean many, many hours at a time, where it was as if uh, I'd always been there. Uh, I, I was just, a, just a, a running being, and uh, that was just who I was and how it's going to remain like that. And I was sort of content with that. And the, the kind of capacity to be able to relate that experience in, in the present that sort of seemed eternal in a way to anything that had happened beforehand um, kind of um, kind of dropped away. And I was just, I was just there in this experience that kind of felt like I would always be there. That doesn't sound too different from people that I, I know and I have heard talk about psychedelic trips. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, especially looking at some of the the scientific literature about psychedelic psychotherapy and, and hearing reports from people on psilocybin and LSD, I, I, I have to imagine there's a, there's a really close um, overlap here, and I, I talk about that a little bit in the in the book. That the you know the the brain has these two uh, essentially these two modes: a sort of a, a reasoning part and a and a dreaming part. And for the most part, in waking awareness, the the capacity to reason is still there. We're able to you know I'm me, you're you. That was then. This is now. I'm able to have some sort of critical uh, formulation of what's happening that after several nights of sleep and the, the, the massive energetic requirements of continuing to move forward, hiking up some steep hill, then running down the other side and then getting into an aid station. And, you know, uh, the, the experience of having to make a decision about should I eat a quesadilla now first and then have Mountain Dew? Or would it be better the other way around? Like, you know, that actually became like this sort of, um, puzzle. Um, you know, it, it, it was all, it was in, really indeed was quite psycho psychedelic and <clears throat> there's some, definitely a similarity there. It's fascinating to me because ultra running, and we can get deeper into this, tends to attract a lot of folks who have similar backgrounds to you, people who've dealt with depression, drug problems, suicidal thoughts, and Today, there's a big push for psychedelic therapy to treat a lot of the same sorts of things. And I just, as a layperson, find it really fascinating the overlap between what it is that you just described from a, from a psychological standpoint. It, you know, it's, it's, it's clear that we're at this point now as a society where the, there are so many of our community members who are really struggling, right? Whether it's de depression, anxiety, PTSD, substance use. And although there certainly are treatments out there, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, medication, mm -hmm. uh, exercise, just normal exercise will, will help with mood. I'm sure that there are people listening right now who are aware either for themselves or people that they know that they have tried or even exhausted the conventional existing remedies and still aren't feeling that whatever suffering that they're contending with is, is completely attended to. And there is a sense out there of, I need, I need something more. I need some sort of breakthrough. And, I, and, I, and my sense is that whether you are deciding to run 100 miles or 
interested in psychedelic psychotherapy, that that yearning for some way of uh, breaking through some kind of rigid way of thinking and feeling, that that is where that impetus is coming from. And certainly that, that was my experience over the years of something happened in the middle of the night on these really long runs where there was something that shifted in, in the, in the, that waking dream state where I, I develop, I talk about this in the book, I developed a very different way of relating to my, my memories, my sense of who I was, my sense of what was, what was available to me in, uh, in this life. And, and, and I sense that psychedelics likely operate in a certain way where you hear people talking about psychedelics where they, they go into an experience of really uh, coming to terms with the, the, the memory of very difficult things that happen to mm-hmm. them. Uh, but then some sense of not, it's not that those memories get uh, wiped clean or erased, but that there is some capacity to either see them from a different perspective or, um, or experience less shame or forgive someone or, or often forgive yourself. And, and that the, the experience in the, in the aftermath of that is, 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 is held in a different way. And, and I think that, that ultra running, my, my experience was that it, 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 did, it did offer that in ways that are sometimes you know, quite difficult to describe the, in some ways, the rationale of writing this book was, was not to, not to just describe that process abstractly, but to, you know, with the classic writing dictum, show, don't tell, right. To really show, okay, I went through these difficult things and this, through this 200 mile race, this is how those memories of child trauma and suicide, uh, got metabolized and transformed through this crucible of a very extreme uh, present moment sensory physical experience running for 96 hours uh, in the mountains. You're the perfect person that I can think of to ask this next question, just given your background as an ultra runner, but also as a clinical psychologist. How do you respond when people say ultra running is just replacing one form of addiction with another? I, I, you, you hear that a lot, right? And I think that that is is misguided for a, for a couple of reasons. But it's 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 not the case that doing something a lot is necessarily bad, right? You know, if that if that were the case, if doing something an awful lot of the time was bad by definition, then you'd ha- we would have to say that I didn't know. The, the Dalai Lama was like a kindness addict, right? He's, he's not a kindness addict. He's just a really kind person. He's, he's practiced a certain disposition in the world through very rigorous training that has made him uh, able to, to do that. So my, my, my sense of the relationship between uh, substance dependence and, and um, ultra running is that <clears throat> there may be some sort of, they may be mirror images in a way, there may be some sort of family resemblance, but the, the really important difference is that, you know, what, what, what I saw in my own experience, and certainly what I see clinically with patients, is what's really problematic about 
being addicted to alcohol or drugs or other compulsive behaviors, food or video games, is that they are in the in the in the lingo, they're diseases of isolation, right? You mm-hmm. become uh, alone with that with those behaviors. One and two, the 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 more you engage in those destructive behaviors, the worse your life gets. The more disconnected you become from other people, the more you, you disconnected you are, even from your own sense of who you are, your own sense of your own dignity. Um, it, it becomes hard to even know what's what's true or real anymore. So that's regular addiction. What happens to people when they become uh, really passionate runners, ultra runners, uh, swimmers, or, or whatever? My sense from my own experience and others is it's actually the opposite, right? We, you're not hiding away and isolating. You're you're getting outside. You're not disconnecting from the world. You're getting connected with it. You're getting getting connected with the physical world, whether it's the trail or the track or or, or whatever. You're you're getting connected with other people. Um, you're getting mm-hmm. connected with some sense of purpose at minimum in 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 the sport and often in in ways beyond that. I'd say the only caveat to that and the only way in which they perhaps might be there might be some direct crossover is it's possible to have a dysfunctional or unhealthy relationship to anything, right? So I'd say that I would invite people to to, to look at their own relationship to whatever it is they're doing, whether it's running or anything, and say, how, how is this serving me and uh, or not serving me? Uh, am I doing this to the exclusion of my responsibilities to my family, friends, loved ones, community? <clears throat> or, or in fact, is this, is this practice of running actually um, foundational in, 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 in helping me do that? My sense that overall for the majority of runners and athletes is that it's the, the second scenario which is true, that, that running actually tends to be to cultivate connection and gratitude and and and, and love and 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 the ability to be to be um able to be of service to others if it if it stops being that then then maybe maybe it maybe you want to look at that but i i I think it it, it's, it's usually the case that it's a it's a it's a positive force in people's lives yeah, that's really beautiful and it resonates with me and holds true in, in my own life and my own experiences as well. And I think you hit on something really important about these diseases of isolation and what running can offer that is like really the antithesis of that. And I think about the community aspect in this you know niche world of vulture running that we belong to. That's probably the the number one thing that you hear is the community is so great. The community is so welcoming. And I think there are a lot of people who make up that community because that's what they were missing in, in their own lives. And now that they have it and, and since they do have it and realized like what their life was like before of, of not having it, it holds this very high sense of, of importance to mm-hmm. them to us i think that's right and i think that's also a real crossover between uh, or it's part of the the reason that ultra why people who've overcome difficult things i think end up getting drawn whether it's ultras or other endurance sports is it provides a a container for learning certain important lessons that perhaps we didn't get 
along the way. I remember one lesson that I learned through Ultras quite early is it, it's really okay to ask for help. Uh, in fact, it, it's, it's you have to, right? That I, I remember once being out on some very hot day, I'd run out of water, I was hours away from, from, from help, and I, and I had a sense of being alone and isolated and, and, and afraid and, and, and then seeing other runners and then like, well, you know what? You could ask them for some water and, uh, and then having the experience of doing that and, you know, that your fellow runner is, is more than happy to help you out. And it, it was actually kind of profoundly therapeutic in a way. And it was the aha moment was, was the sort of realization of how long I'd spent in my life sort of sensing oh, I, I'm sort of, the, the task is for me to get through this by myself. And ultras really reveals the limits of that. You can't get through it alone. To shift the conversation back to you and your story, can you recall your first quote-unquote official run or the first time that a run felt meaningful to you? Hmm. Yeah, I do. I do remember one, ultra uh, very early on so this was in i think january or february of 2007 so at that point i was just a a year out of the psychiatric hospital and maybe five months sober from cocaine addiction and so i was not not in good shape but i somehow found my way into trail running and i had completed a 50k somehow and then I thought, okay, I managed to do that. I'll do a 50-mile event. And uh, I'd been running and training in the Bay Area, where at that point in the year it was pretty cold and foggy. And then the 50-mile was out in the East Bay in, on a mount, it's called Mount Diablo. It's mm-hmm. very, very hot that day, and I wasn't ready for that. And I, uh, I got maybe 20 three 24 miles in and i was aware that i was not going to make the 25 mile cutoff uh that 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 i would exceed the time that they they had allotted for the first 25 and i was going to be pulled from the race and i was really doing everything i could to avoid that the like the two or three miles between mile 20 three and 25 thinking, you know, I, I really don't want to fail in this. I've, I've failed. I failed in so many things. And I thought that ultra running and running was going to be this, this uh, vehicle where I would experience success finally. And so I got into the aid station, you know, 12 minutes or something like that past the cutoff. But I was really aware immediately in the the response of the the volunteers that there was no shame in that uh, that 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 was just the reality of the sport. That I think, as someone even said at the time, you know, if you if you if you never get a, a, a DNF, you know, did not finish, you're not you, you know you, you're not trying hard enough. You haven't picked something really challenging. This is part of what this is about. Is to, to explore the limits, but there's no failure here. There's, there's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And that was very palpable from the people there. They said that explicitly, but also just in their whole demeanor, it was like, good job, man, you know, whatever, sit down and, uh, you know, have a, have a glass of uh, Mountain Dew 
Um, and the the feeling of being okay with quote unquote failure and knowing that there really was no such thing in, in this new context <clears throat> opened the door to a kind of completely different way of thinking about not just running, but kind of almost everything that like, and, and a sort of realization about how much in my own life and mind had really been organized around this idea of whether or not I was good enough and falling short. And that, that there was a different way of relating to myself and what I did in the world that was, was not about winners and losers. It was about just going out there and exploring and being with nature and other people. And that was beautiful in itself. I'd love to dig into this idea of failure with you a little bit more. What are your earliest memories of feeling that way? Like you had failed at something and that it was difficult for you to overcome and move on. When I grew up, I grew up in England in a family, a Catholic family. My, my mother was Catholic. My father was Protestant. They had immigrated to Britain from Northern Ireland at the peak of that country's sectarian war. And the, the, the culture that I grew up in, this was my, my sense of who I was, was very much about it's very important for me to be the best. I, I, I need to be the kid at the front of the class uh, with his hand up in the air with the right answer. And um, in, on sports day in the summer, I, I need to win the race. I was a runner there. I had a brief uh, period of, of um, winning races when I was about eight, never to be repeated. <laughs> but it was, it was very important to be fast. It was very important to be first. It was very important to be right. <laughs> and there was something profoundly affirming about the experience of the teacher putting out some question and me putting it, raising my hand and then being picked on and being said and being told you're right. Because what was happening at home is the, the, the early uh, glimmers of uh, my uh, of real challenges in my mother's mental health in, in particular, and, and some very challenging experiences where, and I talk about this in detail in the book, where essentially the, 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 the feedback I got was, you know, this sort of, very um, uh, stressful ca kind of Catholicly Catholic vision of reality that <clears throat> there was a this split between good and evil, and I was I was walking this line uh, at, at every moment between that and and experiences where I might uh, I might step out of line in in some way. Um, There's an experience I talk about in the book where I um, I stole some some cash from my mother's purse to buy a um to buy some baked goods uh I, 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 that was obviously not the right thing to do but the, the the level of reaction to this was was so extreme uh and the 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 message i learned early on was that i was walking this tightrope of um a right way of being and a right way of um of acting and that it was quite possible at any moment to fall off into this kind of 
uh, abyss where uh, I was bad. And of course, I didn't know that at the time when I was seven, eight, nine. Um, but, you know, that was really the the root of uh, some of the experiences of, of, of depression I had later, which is to be very preoccupied with this with this sort of sense of needing to defend uh, uh, some idea of myself as as good and acceptable, but really fearing that that deep down, if you if you got to know me, you, you would see that I was uh, I was uh, inadequate or bad or or or, or um, even evil in in some in some kind of cryptic way. When were you able to break free from that finally? Now, those experiences for anyone who's been through traumatic child experiences they can they can take a lot of undoing i'd say that it was it's hard to say that there was one single moment or insight it was through the experience over several years after really bottoming out in terms of my depression and addiction in beginning to make progress from those experiences through running along on the trail, some of the experiences I, I described a moment ago about understanding there's a different way of relating to myself other than a, about a kind of either being um, a, a, you know, a success or a failure. Experiences in uh, therapy of... Um, talking about what I'd been through when I was younger in the presence of uh, a caring person who would be able to listen and reflect back to me on what I was saying and uh, help me join the dots between uh, experiences that in some cases I didn't even necessarily always remember with great clarity, but whose emotional legacy lived on for me in, in, in feelings, feelings of inadequacy or shame, being able to help me understand that those, those feelings um, were, the, were the aftermath of, uh, of, of what it was like for me when I was very little uh, in, a, in a, a kind of invalidate, emotionally invalidating in, environment with experiences of, of abuse and neglect. So over time, those those two things together, I'd say the the experiences on the trail of of feeling um, comfortable and safe in my own body, moving forward of my own volition in a in a beautiful environment, feeling strong and confident and free, and and then on and then on the other side experiences on the you know the therapist's couch which in some ways mirrored the experience on in, on on the trail in some ways of, of being with a caring person who offered another kind of safe environment those two things in in synthesis uh, gradually created a, a, a different a different experience of my of myself at risk of skipping over too much when did you decide to explore becoming a psychologist yourself? I remember when I was in the psychiatric hospital in San Francisco, this was in the spring of 2005. 
I was at a point in my own depression where it was very difficult for me to, to even talk at all. I, 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 I was in a state of such severe depression that thoughts weren't really forming in a very coherent way. I couldn't, I couldn't speak. But what I could do was listen. And there were a few experiences even then where I was with other patients describing their own experiences where I was where I was able to pay attention. And even then, I remember sometimes people would say things like, you're a good listener. And now I was in a state of mind where I really didn't think I was very good at anything, but it, but it did stay with me a little bit. Uh, in, in the aftermath of recovering from suicidal depression and then the, the addiction that followed from that and the recovery from that, I spent quite a long time, maybe, maybe a year, really not knowing where the next step for me in my life professionally was going to be. I, uh, I at that point, had a job in an office, uh, administrative job. Um, I thought about all kinds of things. Um, I, I had been, uh, at this point, I was uh, exploring ultras, getting, getting stronger. And what, what gradually emerged to me is that, you know, in given everything I'd been through, the, the the path that seemed as if it would be the most rewarding would be to try and understand the the practices and um, ways of of thinking that had helped me uh, recover, develop some better understanding of all of that, in order to be useful to others. So quite early on in in, in recovery from depression addiction. It occurred to me to to embark on some kind of path um, towards a, being a mental health professional. Um, it took me a while to identify clinical psychology specifically, but it was it was fairly on in, in that in, in that point of time. A couple more things before we wrap up this conversation. I'm interested in what role running plays in your life today. Like, how does it fit into a typical week for you at this point i still absolutely love running i'd say i love running as much as as any any runner um i i do other things as well now uh, I, I started open water swimming about a, a year and a half ago i've been really enjoying that i climb my my son I do yoga um every day i'd say i'm running for a ultra runner, very limited mileage, probably 30 miles a week, probably running three to four times. So short-ish runs in the week, four to six miles. And then the weekend, even now, not 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 huge runs, like 12, sometimes 15 miles. And um, I haven't done a lot of events through the course of the pandemic, but I, I do have some thoughts about longer races I might do uh, in 2022. Does that feel like enough in terms of the amount of running that you're doing? I mean, obviously, if you wanted to do more, you probably mm -hmm. could. But I'm, I'm interested yeah. in 
this this ultra runner's mindset of feeling like you've always got to do a little bit more? It's a it's a great question, and my where my where I'm personally at at this point is more is not always necessarily better. That's that I can I can now find that I, if I go out for say a two and a half hour trail run in one of the beautiful places around here in San Francisco, like in the north side of Mount Tam that we were mentioning earlier, and and I'm fully fully in the moment for that two and a half hours. It's sort of it feels kind of perfect. I don't feel the need. It's not as if doing five hours would be twice as good. It might it might be less less rewarding. So I, I'm at a point now where even a little goes a long way, and um, I don't necessarily feel the need to add on days and hours simply because I could. I appreciate that perspective, and the reason I ask it because I've been running for about 25 years now, ever since I was in high school, competitive almost the entire way through cross country track, through college, marathons, ultras, the whole lot, just ran a marathon a few weeks ago. And I'm approaching 40 years old. And I think whenever you do anything for that period of time, it can become hard to break old habits. Mm -hmm. But I think about my own relationship with the sport of running and the amount of work required to train for a marathon, say, um, and the things that you need to do along the way. And I'm finally getting to a point where I could say, I don't, I don't need to necessarily do all that stuff. I don't even need to race necessarily. Mm -hmm. I can find just as much satisfaction and joy out of doing half of what I once did or two thirds of what I once mm -hmm. did, or occasionally meeting with my friends for a workout, but not feeling like I've got to do track on Tuesday, tempo on Saturday, long run on Sunday. And I think a lot of people listening to this, even if they're not ultra runners, can relate to that. Um, you know, it feels like as you move on mm -hmm. through life, for whatever reason, mm -hmm. your relationship to the thing mm -hmm. changes. And a lot of people, myself included, have struggled with that. Um, and that's why I asked that question. I was curious, yeah. if, you know, your relationship to it has changed. And, and if because of that change, it's been a struggle. It hasn't been a struggle. I also, I am really enjoy embracing at the moment the concept of the I don't know if you're familiar with the OKT, the only known time, right? So like, if, <laughs> like if, if it's, you know, some random 1.9 mile route around your neighborhood that you personally created, you probably have the only known time for that, right? And that there's something about exploring your neck of the woods and, and, and approaching running as play and exploration that that feels very satisfying to me in a way that that sort of feels quite distinct from just the way I used to think about it earlier on, where you know pushing for certain performances or times. I'm not against that, but so I, I turned fifty this year, so I I will not be likely setting PRs, but I in some ways get more out of running, having now embraced it in a, in a more uh, playful way. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. I actually said this to one of my running buddies the other day that I'm having more fun doing this now as I approach 40 years old, doing less of it than I have in years past, not tying my own identity or self-worth or any of that stuff into to race results, but just the simple act of meeting a friend on a Wednesday morning to do a workout or to go on a long run and 
explore my own backyard in ways that I, I haven't in the past. It, it's almost surprising in a way that that's bringing me more joy than you know winning the race or setting a personal best. And I've always just kind of found that to be a, a pretty fascinating thing. My sense of that psychologically is that when we're gunning for a certain time or certain performance or certain position in the race, necessarily there's a lot of attachment to some idea of what you want the experience to be. And that could, of course, be very rewarding if you, if you get that uh, and, it, you, and you may do. But, but what, it, what it might present some obstacles towards accomplishing is, is really embracing and soaking up the experience that you're actually having as opposed to the one that you've decided you should, quote unquote should have. Last question, and it piggybacks off of what we've just been talking about, but do you feel the need or desire to run another 200-mile race or something even beyond that? Because they do exist. <laughs> I really don't. I think that there are, there are some things you really only need to experience once. It was so unbelievably, incredibly hard in ways that were incredibly enriching and and uh, uh expanded my my sense of my myself and so forth but i in some ways feel like i might be uh honoring the experience more by by letting it be a once in a lifetime uh thing i, I i'm sure I'll, I'll run in some shape or form really as long as i can i i, I might do another uh, hundred miler but it, i i cannot imagine doing 200 mile race again. <laughs> okay, we will leave it at that. Jason Thompson, the book is called Running is a Kind of Dreaming. I recommend checking it out and I thank you for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much, Mario. It was a real pleasure. All right, thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Recover Athletics for sponsoring this episode of the show. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand born from a desire to celebrate both the history and evolving culture of running. Go to tracksmith.com slash Mario to check out some of my favorite apparel picks and use the code Mario, that's M-A-R-I-O, all caps, when you check out to get free shipping on your order while also helping support LA Saves Track. Recover Athletics has worked with the world's best sports physicians and Olympians like Meb Kofleski to design an app that makes prehab fun and easy. In 90 seconds, the app will customize a program for your body and your training with different resistance exercises, plyometrics, and mobility work. No pills, no potions, no BS, just 100% evidence-based exercises that are easy to follow on your iPhone or iPad. It's available only in the iOS app store right now by searching Recover Athletics or by clicking the link in this episode's show notes. Couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. 
It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.